We know the Psalms are a collection of songs, ancient songs collected by the Jewish people. They appear in a book in the Jewish part of the Bible, and they are used in synagogues and in churches throughout the world. The Psalms are a collection of songs attributed to King David. Some of them are quite joyous. Some of them offer comfort. Some of them are full of very difficult language, very difficult images. But as a whole, the Psalter is one of the places that human beings have gone to time and time again for comfort and for hope. Here is Psalm 6. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are shaking with terror. My soul is also struck with terror, while you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, save my life. Deliver me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who can give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eyes waste away because of my grief. They grow weak because of all of my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and struck with terror. They shall turn back and in a moment be put to shame. I watched my grandfather spend 10 years dying of Parkinson's disease. The end was especially gruesome. Parkinson's disease first robbed him of his fine motor skills. He could not dress himself easily. Eating became difficult. No longer could he fix things in his shop. Then Parkinson's had its way with his mind. He would sometimes leave the house and wander around town looking for his cows to bring them home to milk. He hadn't owned cows since the mid-1970s. He would leave the stove on, or he would leave the freezer door open. Slowly, he lost track of who most of us were. And in his hallucinations, He would cry out in anger or in sadness. We had to put this lovely, kind, generous man in a nursing home, and it just about killed us. It was in that nursing home where he died. I am weary with my moaning, Psalm 6 says. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eyes grow weak 
because of all of my foes. What comfort it was to have words like these as we watched my grandfather die. For we were weary with our moaning. Every night he flooded his bed with tears. We too drenched ourselves with our weeping. We all grew weak and sad at the end. Yet we knew that we were not alone. We knew a congregation prayed for my grandfather and prayed for us, prayed for us by name. We knew words of comfort came not only from scripture, but also from the kindness of doctors and nurses, neighbors and friends. We knew my grandfather's suffering would not last for always. We knew he would be released, and us with him. As a minister, I go many different places and serve many different roles. Sometimes I'm a prophet, sometimes a teacher, sometimes an administrator, sometimes an advocate, sometimes a healer. In all these roles, I'm most struck by the difference between what I am asked to do in a hospital room that I am rarely asked to do at church. What is needed in a hospital room or a nursing home or a prison often feels much more real than what is usually asked for at church. Let me explain. Church very often feels like the place where we have to have it all together or at least appear like we have it all together. First Parish in Concord has a very particular image of itself, one of competence and confidence. First Parish always appears to be well-run, neat, and tidy. And I wouldn't change any of this except to wonder if we might be missing something. Is there room for mistakes here? Can people really come here in grief? Do we offer forgiveness? Do we offer compassion? Can we handle lament? And what role do I play as your minister in opening us up emotionally? And what role do I play in maintaining the status quo? In a hospital room or a nursing home or a jail cell, a minister brings something very different than a tidy 20-minute sermon amid a well-orchestrated worship service. In a hospital room or a nursing home or a jail cell, a minister is there simply to be with the person across from her. She is there to hold a hand, to listen patiently, to offer a prayer, and to leave that place with nothing resolved. For in a hospital, people do get better, but not always. In a nursing home, people do find joy, but not always. In a jail cell, people do reshape their lives, but not always. A minister's main role in a hospital room or a nursing home or a jail cell is to witness to lament. 
He is there to make sure that there is room enough for fear and for anguish, for grief and for anger. He is there to be the representative of a God who can hear lamentation. The minister is not there to make anything better. He is there to make sure grieving, scared people are heard. So why the disconnect between what happens in church and what happens in the hospital? Why do ministers have to shape-shift? Why is it so hard for congregations to acknowledge the pain of the world? In an article about the Psalms, Martin Tell, the director of music at Princeton Theological Seminary, tells the following story. In the early 1990s, he says, I followed the movement of a group of liturgical theologians who proposed to bring the practice of lament back into corporate worship. One of the ways they hoped to do this was through singing the full breadth of the Psalter, all of the psalms in the book, even the hard ones. Although this was a well-grounded initiative, it failed. When push came to shove, congregants felt ill at ease singing songs of pain or defiance. In our current situation of relative peace and affluence, he continues, the church is not feeling it when it comes to lament. This is a fair assessment. How can we pray the prayer of the oppressed when we are not ourselves oppressed? In the end, it's a matter of integrity. But he goes on to say, herein lies the problem. Where did we get the idea that we should feel that the Psalms are ours? Why must our voice be primary? What if we reframed and represented these psalms in such a way that suggests even demands that we hear the voices of others? Then, and perhaps only then, can we pray these psalms with integrity. I wonder... How great is our collective capacity for lament? How well can we at First Parish in Concord hold pain? I suspect that it is actually greater than we realize. Our collective capacity for lament is what allows us to lift up names in prayer each week. Our collective capacity for lament allows us to really feel for the refugees flooding across Europe fleeing war and famine. Our collective capacity for lament allows us to see the centuries-old racial divide that means poverty and discrimination for people of color in our own country. Our collective capacity for lament allows us to grieve openly when one in our congregation dies. For it is important to mourn It is important to weep. It is important to mingle anger and tears. It is important to feel the true depth of sadness. For it is only through lamentation that we will find a way to forgiveness and reconciliation. It is only through grieving that we will find a way to new joy and celebration.
most of the families I meet with when I plan memorial services start the conversation by insisting that the service be a celebration of life. In most cases, the person who died was quite old, but even for middle-aged people and younger, the demand is the same. We want this to be a celebration of life. I just smile to myself and agree to call it a celebration of life. But I know what a memorial service really is. It is a solemn ritual that allows the living to say goodbye to the dead. A memorial service is rightly a time of mourning and of sadness. It is a time when family and friends come together in their disbelief that their loved one is actually gone. A memorial service has a finality that allows people to move on. Call it a celebration of life if you like, but a memorial service is about lament. Now, I'm not so callous as to not understand what people mean by wanting a service, a memorial service, to be a celebration of life. They mean that they don't want the dead, that they want the dead person to be remembered well. They don't want the service to seem dour. They want to be able to tell a funny story or two. They want to be able to remember the person as he or she was before they got sick or old. They want to have their own lives affirmed by this celebration of life. And that is all fine. It does not, however, change my approach as a minister. I know that unless some grieving happens at the memorial service, I have not done my job well. Unless there are some tears and some choked-up words, I am officiating at an empty ritual. Unless people can feel sadness as well as gratitude, this religious service will have failed them. I invariably begin a memorial service by saying, We are here today to mourn the death of Jane Smith and to celebrate her life. We are here to say goodbye to her and to remember her well. People's tears soon follow as the ritual does its work. Too often, I think we don't let ourselves feel lament. We worry that lament will send us into a downward spiral of depression. We worry that someone will see us crying and we'll be embarrassed. We worry that family members will misunderstand lament as dissatisfaction. We worry that lament will make us less competent, less capable, less confident. I'm here this morning to tell you that lament will actually do just the opposite. Heartfelt lament will set you free from depression. It will make embarrassment vanish. Lament will increase your satisfaction with life. Your ability to be vulnerable and to mourn will make you more competent, more capable, more confident. It is only those who are afraid of the full range of emotions that are held hostage by them. 
to weep, and to mourn are the natural human responses to tragedy and loss. We must be able to lament openly, for it is through lamentation that we might emerge on the other side of grief. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, and there we wept when we remembered Zion. The Jews are a strong and resilient people. They are a people who have been greatly persecuted. They are a people who have never given up. On the willows there we hung our harps, for our captors asked of us songs, and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Carried away again and again, the Jews have had their songs silenced over and over, but they have not been silenced as a religious people. They have used songs of lament and songs of joy to rebuild themselves and to endure. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, asks Psalm 137, how indeed. And how could enslaved blacks sing songs in America? How could men and women in Jamaica and elsewhere make a joyful, subversive song out of Psalm 137? How could Dutch churches sing this psalm during the Nazi occupation without fearing that their captors would recognize that it was about them and extinguish their hope? The psalms have been sung for thousands of years, sung in times of fear and strife, sung in times of peace and prosperity. Because people have always needed expressions of grief and mourning, the darker psalms, the ones usually ignored in churches, have stood ready to hold their lamentation. Whether we sing songs of grief for ourselves or on behalf of those in our world who suffer greatly, let us not forget their power. Let us not forget the transforming power of lament. So be it. <laughs>